Well, it's certainly good to see you today. How are you doing? We got to uh, go to Colorado for Christmas, and we went snowmobiling, and it was 18 below zero, and I didn't like it. And then uh, we, uh, we have the, the cutest grandkids in the world, and they got these great, big, beautiful eyes. They look right in your face, they get right in close, and they say, I love you, Papa, and then they cough in your face. You know, they're bioterrorists. It's what grandkids are. They're just, they're carriers, and we need to call them what they are because it's a challenge. But I hope you had a good Christmas, and I hope you look forward to a, a great new year that God is going to give us. I want you to think for a moment about your life, and I want you to think about your life in relationship to eternity. And I want to illustrate it with a rope. I saw this illustration one time, and it so moved me. I thought, I'm going to do this someday. But I want you to think about the blue part of this rope as your life. And the rest of this rope, it goes on, just imagine, it goes on into eternity. And this is your life. And everything about your life is about the blue. And so you go through school, and you say, I'm going to go to college. And you go to college, and you go, wow, it's all about college, and I'm going to have fun in college. Because I'm tired of living like my parents wanted me to live. And then you get out of college and you go get a job and you say, I'm going to work really hard so that I can retire after so many years so I can go play golf five days a week because my wife really won't want me home. And you go through all these different things and everything about your life is about the blue. It's about how can I get enough money to buy that new car? How can I get enough money to buy those new clothes? How can I, how can I, how can I? And rarely do we take time in the blue to think about how insignificant this is in relationship to this. That eternity is so far-reaching, and everything you do in the blue has direct bearing on the rest of eternity. And what you do, once you end, once that ends right here, there is nothing you can do at that point to better your situation in eternity. It's done. That's why Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth. Because you have to do it now because it'll be too late then. How often do we take account of today and we lose sight of eternity? You see, you have to learn how to leverage your life in the blue for eternity. So when we think about life, we think about eternity, and we think about what it's all about, I want to give you an illustration of someone who understood something about leveraging their blue into eternity. In the 1400s, there was a man by the name of John Huss. He was from what we would call today Czechoslovakia but now been renamed again. <clears throat> Water's good. Anybody thirsty? <laughs> I'm sorry, but <coughs> the kids got the best of me. He really understood what it meant to walk in the Spirit and to live in the Word of God. And he began to preach Jesus. <clears throat> he was a priest. He was a Catholic priest. He was very unique in that day. He really understood what it meant to walk with God. He had followers, and they began to go out and preach the Word of God everywhere they went. 
And as they went, they created more controversy and more conflict until finally the Pope summoned John Huss to Constance under false pretenses. Told him he was going to receive a recognition. What he did was he asked him to renounce the gospel that he was preaching. And when he refused, he was burned at the stake. His followers began to disperse. They were known as the Hussites. They began to move all across Europe, and they found themselves in a place called Moravia. And in Moravia, they became known as the Moravian Brethren. They were so committed to Christ. The legacy of the previous 300 years had set well in their heart and in their soul. And they began to pray. They began to pray daily. They began the first 24-7 prayer meeting that we know about. For 100 years, the Moravian Brethren had some or most of their people praying seven days a week, 24 hours a day. They were in cycles and rotating in and out. While the Protestants and the Catholics were fighting during the Reformation period, the Moravians had over 3,000 missionaries dispersed across the, United, across the world and, and into the, the area of, of Puerto Rico and, and parts of the West Indies. They were so committed to the cause of Christ that they sold themselves into slavery, never being able to leave, only to redeem, to try to redeem the slaves that were sold into slavery and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1725, one of their leaders penned these words from an experience that they had in one of their meetings. Let me give it to you. We saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were all under the cloud of our fathers, baptized with their spirit. The Holy Ghost came upon us in those days, and great signs and wonders took place in our midst. From that time, scarcely a day passed but we did not beheld his mighty workings among us. They lived in the cloud. Today I want to talk to you about the cloud of God. I want you to understand that the cloud of God represents the presence of Almighty God. The first time the, the cloud is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 9, and it's there after the great flood that God says he put a rainbow in the cloud. Now we think about rainbows and we think about clouds. We don't think about them connected. But God was sending a deeper message than just rainbows and clouds. He said, I want you to know my promise is rooted in the cloud, in my presence. You can't understand the promises of God unless you understand that all of his promises come true when you're in the presence of God. When Israel began to journey through Egypt, it was a cloud that led them by day and a pillar of fire by night. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped because the cloud was the presence. God is teaching us today, we don't move unless his presence guides us and directs us and moves us in that direction because in the cloud or in the presence are all the promises of God. In the Bible that we have, uh, we're looking at today in Mark chapter 9, we understand something about the cloud. Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, he takes them up on this mountain. Can you imagine if you're the other nine? You're saying, why can't I go? Probably there was some disruption going on within their hearts or in their minds. And they thought, why are they the favorites? Why do those three get to go and we don't get to go? If it was in today, people would be forming a committee to try to find answers to the problem. If it were today, people would be wanting to vote. People would want to be challenging the leadership 
and say, how come you only got those three to go up on the mountain? But Jesus understood something about those who had a heart for the presence. And there were three among the 12 that had a real heart for the presence of God. Repeatedly, he takes the three with him. You see, because he understood this, and he wants us to understand this principle, your destiny is tied to your opportunity. When God provides an opportunity for you, he's connected a destiny to it. He has a reason for that opportunity. Now, you can take the opportunity and turn away from it, thereby missing your destiny. You can rationalize away the opportunity. You can spoil the opportunity. But God says, I'm going to tie something to the opportunities I give you in life. Will you use them wisely? Let's look in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The Bible says, now after six days, six is the number of man. He wanted him to know we're moving into the divine realm now. It's not about six. In John's gospel, remember when Jesus, in his first miracle, turned the water into wine, he said, fill the six pots. You see, numbers are significant in Scripture. He said, fill them to the brim. And those water pots were for the purification of the Jews. He said, I want you to know, you can purify yourself all you want, and the number of man is six, and you can bring it to the very top, but it won't be enough. It's not until I create new wine that you'll understand what it's all about. And so here it says, after six days, he says, Jesus took them on a high mountain apart from themselves, and he was transfigured before their eyes. That word is the word metamorphosis. And literally, he was experiencing in that moment the resurrection, the glorification of Jesus Christ. They were seeing him in all the glory of the Father. They were seeing what they were going to see, what we will see one day when Jesus Christ returns, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, when we see him in all of his glory and all of his praise. Now look what it says before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. Now, I want to give you a couple of principles. You might want to jot these down. Here's the first one. We do too much, too quickly, with too many. Have you ever noticed how you always want more friends than you get them? Then you find out they're not all friends. Jesus knew something about the disciples. He knew that I can't take all 12 with me on the mountain. I can only take three. Do you realize that in a group this size, that God is going to work by the same principle? Not everybody's going to want to go to the mountain. Some are going to disregard it. Some are just going to look at it as a religious experience. Remember, that's living in the blue. If you live in the blue, you'll never understand eternity. You'll never appreciate it. Eternity is not an equalizer of your relationship with God here on earth. Did you hear that? Eternity is not an equalizer of your relationship here on earth. You don't, all all of us are not going to get to eternity and all be on the same level. We're not going to experience the same thing. We're not going to have the same responsibility. Parable after parable reminds us that to whom much is given, much will be expected. And to whom much is given, more will be given. You will determine here and now how much you have there and then. By the way you live your life. I hear people all the time say, I don't really have time to serve God. That's living in the blue. You have all the time you want. As Pastor Nate said last week, what are you going to do with those minutes and seconds and hours of your life? How are you going to use them? 
You see, you can live your life and you get to the end of the blue and you say, wow, it's already the end of the blue? What have I done for God? I know people who say, you know, as soon as I get a good job and as soon as I get enough money, I'm going to start honoring God with the tithe. And I always tell them the same thing. I said, no, you won't. If you have a selfish heart now, you'll have a selfish heart then. It will not change. You have to change now. You have to make a determination. I was reflecting back when we started this church about three and a half, four years ago, and I was looking back, and we went probably the first four months or six months without any salary. Nobody did. But I was tithing out of what I expected God to give me out of my savings. My tithing records go back to February 12, 2012 at this church, even though I had zero income. And God is always blessed. God is always taken care of because I believe the promises of God are always found in the presence. When I enter into the presence, I understand the promises of God. And you can live in the blue all you want, but you will be a person of regret one day in eternity. You say, quit living for now and start living for then. Here's the second rule, the second principle. It's called the rule of the 12. Jesus had 12 disciples. This principle, and and it'll always work out in your life. Just check it out. Jesus had three in his inner circle. He had eight along for the ride, and he had one that would betray him. Your life will work exactly the same way. You're not greater than your Lord. You got 12 friends. You got three really good friends. You got eight associates, and you got one who will betray you every time. That is the principle. God puts the one in your life to keep you close to him. You ever heard the story, keep your your friends close and your enemies closer? Jesus did that. He knew that Judas would betray him. He put him there so that he could see the contrast between dark and light. That's why John says in 1 John, he says, they're not all uh, were with us, for had they been with us, they would have remained with us. But it became evident they were not of us because they departed from us. You see, there's always these contrasts going on in Scripture. Third principle is the principle of transformation. God is not concerned about how much you know. He's concerned about how much you're transformed into the image of Jesus. You might know more than me. You might know more than anybody else in the world about the Word of God. But if you're not transformed, you're useless in His hands. All all knowledge will do is puff you up and make you arrogant. It'll never bring you into the image and the presence of Almighty God. And it's all about coming into His presence. You see, God reveals His nature not to increase your knowledge or intelligence, but to allow you to experience Him in that transformation. So if God reveals Himself as the healer to you in your experience with Him, He wants you to be healed or He wants you to lay hands on someone so they can be healed. He doesn't do it so you can say, you know, I just did a Bible study and God is our healer. Isn't that a wonderful truth? What good does it do if people all around you are sick and you haven't been empowered to transform their lives into into someone who's been healed by the power of Almighty God? All the revelation of God is to bring you. If God reveals himself to you as the sovereign king and Lord, it's because he he wants you to acknowledge him to be Lord. You say, well, he's Lord. Is he Lord of all? Or is he just Lord of some? Some part of your life. See, he can be resident and not reigning. Resident in your heart. Yes, you're a Christian, but is he reigning over your life? God wants us to understand these things. I was reading uh, just the other day in this book, and I saw this quote from Bill Johnson, and I wanted to share it with you. Listen to what he says. Our hearts know that there's so much more in life 
than what we perceive with our senses. We are spiritually agitated by the lack of connection with the realm of the supernatural. Do you ever feel that? I'm in the natural and the supernatural. I'm agitated. I want more of this. How do I get here? How do I get there? In the end, nothing satisfies the heart of a Christian like seeing so-called impossibilities bow their knees to the name of Jesus. Anything less is abnormal and unfulfilling. See, Christianity isn't supposed to be coming and sitting and listening and then evaluating. Say, well, that was a good song. I didn't like that one. That was too loud. If you don't like loud, you're going to hate heaven. Every time those angels are talking, they're always saying it's a loud voice. There's only one time when it's silence. It says there was silence in the heaven for the space of about one hour. That's it. One hour of quiet meditation. Let me tell you what quiet meditation does for you. It puts you to sleep. You ever tried to be quiet, lay on the floor and just pray? I always wake up in the same position I got in. Amen? I don't know. Maybe that's spiritual for you, but it's not spiritual for me. The only way I can stay awake when I pray is to pace. I can get on my knees, and if, the, if my knees are hurting, that helps me stay awake. i got to do something to keep alert. Amen? Now, maybe you're more spiritual than me, and you can do it. I can't. I lay in bed, so I'm going to go lay in bed and sleep. No, that's what I'm not going to lay in bed and pray. I'm going to sleep. God wants to get our hearts, wants to get a touch. Let me, let me give you another truth here. Your identity empowers you for the miraculous. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you will never see miracles in your life. You've got to know that you're not, and unfortunately, this message got preached a lot in church. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. The Bible never said that about you. It said you're a son of the living God. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you see yourself simply as a sinner saved by grace, then you will do what sinners saved by grace do, and you will sin to your heart's content. You're different from that. You're more than that. You're responsible. You're the temple of the living God. The Bible says in Isaiah, you're like a royal diadem in the hand of our God. He turns you every way it will, and he'll see every facet of your life reflected, reflects the glory of Almighty God because you're a son or a daughter of the living God. If all you see yourself is someone who believes, then Christianity has become a hobby to you. And you'll change hobbies when this hobby doesn't look as good as the new hobby. That's why people get caught up with all that goes on in the world because they're so unsatisfied because they don't live in the presence of Almighty God. So I got a new hobby. Used to be Christianity. Yeah, I'm going to heaven, but I really like, I like this hobby better. See if you like it when you start living in the white and get out of the blue. See how that evaluation works for you when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds done in the body. See how that works for you. It won't work well. That's why there's so much admonition from God to tell us about this. Let me give you this next scripture. Mark chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. And Elijah appeared and Moses. Now imagine this vision, this dream, this reality that they're experiencing. All of a sudden, Peter, James, John, Jesus. And all of a sudden, Moses, Elijah shows up. Can you imagine what's going on? You're probably checking yourself to see if you're awake. You're wondering if this is real. You're trying to figure out what's going on. And they were talking with Jesus. And God gives this revelation. Peter answered and said unto Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make 
three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, because we, they did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. You know, Peter made a mistake here. He put Moses and Elijah on the same level with Jesus. Let's build three tabernacles. Let's get one over here for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's interesting, he changed the order. It was Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, but then he changed the order. He changed the order. He put Moses first because he thought the law was more important than the prophets. The law only sets the stage for the prophets, for the prophets predict and tell you about Jesus. When the enemy attacks, he'll attack on two folds. Number one, the authority. The first Adam, remember what the Satan said to him? Has God said? Question the word of God. That's the first attack. If he can get you to believe that the Bible is not the word of God or not all the word of God or not applicable for you in this day, then he's already got the first step in the journey of your life. Has God said? That's what he said to the first Adam in the book of Genesis. But you know what he said to the second Adam? Jesus is called the second Adam. He said to, to him these words. He questioned the identity. He said, if you are the son of God, first Adam questioned the authority, second one, the identity. You see, if you don't believe the word of God is truly the word of God and you don't know your identity as a son of the living God, then you are not going to see the miraculous. You're not going to move mountains. You'll never see anything happen out of that because you don't know who you are in Christ. And what you're going to do is you're going to react out of fear versus reacting out of identity. When tragedy comes in your life, if you really know who you are, you go, this is just normal. This is how life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be challenging. It's supposed to be difficult. I am human. I am imperfect. I know these things come. But God, I know my identity. I am, I am greater than that. And you have greater plans for me than this. And no good thing will you turn away from me if I put my heart completely in yours. You see, strength of the word of God is found in opposition. If you don't have opposition because of the word of God, you're never going to experience the strength of the word of God. You have to be opposed. Do you ever notice in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness by who? By the Spirit of God. To what? To be tempted of the devil. And the question was going to be, the first question is, if you are the Son of God, question your identity. Second thing is, it is written, question the Word of God. Word of God identity. If you get those two things straight, you're going to be in good shape. The strength of the Word of God is found in opposition, so the promise of God must be, tempted, must be tested for you to know it's real. Let me tell you what God showed me. I was praying, and God said, um, you need to trust me for $300,000 in the month of December for an offering. And that's a really big offering for us in the month of December. But you see, we use that December money, to it carries us into Easter. That's kind of how church works, all right? So we're down to about the 28th or the 29th, and we're halfway there. We get down to the 31st, and we're still not much more than halfway there. And I said, God, you told me to trust you for $300,000. I know I heard you. Now, what's the problem? Because it's not on my end. This is your issue, God, and you need to resolve it quickly because midnight is coming. That's just how I talk to God. I don't know any other way. I can't do those nice little devotionals. Oh, God, I'm just teach me to, to understand that disappointment. 
That's no faith. Man, I want to grab hold of faith, and I don't want to let go of it until God comes through. If I'm praying for your healing, do you want me to pray that kind of prayer? Oh, God, I just help them deal with the disappointment when they die. (laughs) Or do you want me to say, God, your word said we're to heal the sick, cast out demons, work miracles. God, you said it. We're believing you for it. Which do you want? the former or the latter. Man, I get so upset about some prayers I hear. It's just, a, it's just a nice therapeutic talk telling people to deal with it. I like to see God work. I think that's why we've seen so many people healed in this church and so many miracles in this church is because we just refuse to doubt. Now, do I ever struggle with it? Every time I pray, God goes, are you really there? I'm there, God. Enemy comes and goes, it ain't going to work. My humanness goes, you're stupid. I may be stupid, but, you know, that's another issue. But but I struggle because there's always that struggling going on. But, you know, watch this. Your experience will always contradict the promise. My experience is, God, it's the 31st. You've come up short. You've got to move somebody. You've got to do something. A few people come. They walk in. They, they bring their offering in. They get it in right before the bell tolls so they can get the tax benefit or whatever. Thank God that we have that benefit. Come up here Friday or Saturday. I go going through the mail. I open up one letter. And this one letter pushed us over the $300,000 mark. My experience contradicted the promise that God gave me. But the promise was true. I didn't stop doubting. I didn't know what was going to happen. God, I put it in his lap. See, the miracle is not $300,000. The miracle is that we trust God and God comes through for whatever we trust God for. It could have been $30. It doesn't matter. It's the miracle. A year ago, on Christmas Eve, we asked our single mothers with children to come forward so we could pray for them. We took a special offering for them. This was a year ago now. Somebody showed up, put a $10,000 check in the offering plate in addition to other gifts that were given for the single moms, not for us. We were going to disperse 100% of it. Didn't know who the person was at the time. The next year, woman comes up to me. She said, you know, I was one of those women that received some money and I really didn't have, a, have any money to give. I was, not, I was not living in a margin of finances at all. And I got that check. God blessed me. God blessed me with a good job and handed me an envelope full of cash. I, as well as I remember, it was about six or $800. Poured it in there. I told that story again this Christmas Eve. Same guy last year put another $10,000 in. You know what? I can't wait to disperse that to the single moms. Amen? I had a single dad tell me one time, said, why don't you do it for the single dads? I said, because you're asking. Did you follow that? 
You got the wrong heart. When you ask, you got the wrong heart. It's getting quiet in here. I better keep moving. The word is proven true through, through, through contradiction. You know, one of the things I've seen happen at the Women of Influence Conference that we've had, this will be our third one. First year, we had over 300 women. First year, we did it. Second year, we had over 600 women. This year, we're expecting somewhere around eight to 900 women. The thing that's a miracle is not the number of women who show up for this. It's what happens in that moment. It's the transformation that happens. If you haven't registered yet, I want you to register for that. They're about, we're close to halfway full right now. And we haven't even advertised it yet. That'll begin on Monday. And we're going to have people from all over here because they want to say, I want to hear Christine Kane. I want to hear Kim Walker Smith. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to. But you know what? It's not for them. It's for you. It's for you to say to your neighbor, your friend. You don't, may not get them to church. You may not know how to speak to Christ about them. But you know what? You put them in an environment with, with several hundred women and, you, and the Spirit of God is powerful on them. Guess what? You will, they will run ahead of you if you're not careful. So I want you to register today if you haven't already. Let me take you down a little bit further here. Your destiny and identity will always point to Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a cloud. What, what overshadowed them? A cloud. Let's say it together, really? A cloud. A cloud over, came and overshadowed them. cloud is a symbol of the presence of God. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anyone, anymore but only Jesus. You see, sometimes you have to get the presence in your life so you don't see all the other stuff. You don't see all your, the things that are going wrong in your life. You don't get your eye on anybody but Jesus. The cloud of God is for the direction of God. When the presence comes, it gives you direction. The Holy Spirit will lead you into a conflict that you can win. But He will lead you around a conflict that you cannot win. The Holy Spirit likes you to be in conflict so that you prove the promises of the Word of God. If you're not in contradiction and you're not in conflict, you never take the Word of God seriously. Let a crisis come. You'll go to the Word of God. You'll say, wow, I didn't know it had those promises in it. It's for protection. When the presence comes, you're protected. You, may, you, don't feel, you see, you feel vulnerable when you're out of the presence. When you're in the presence, you say, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I just trust God. It's for instruction. He'll guide you. He'll guide you. Let me take you to another scripture. This is an interesting one. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a what? Say it together loud. A cloud. Why is it a cloud? Why doesn't it say just a bunch of people? Why does he use the word cloud? Because the Bible is always clear. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is true. God has a reason for that. A great cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus looked at the cross and said, that's joy. Despising the shame is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, let me tell you what's interesting about this. Chapter 11 is about the heroes of the faith who they're calling the cloud of witnesses. Those cloud of witnesses are those to whom the Bible says the world was not worthy. 
I used to think the cloud of witnesses was everybody who, were, who knew Jesus who died. I don't believe that anymore. You know what I believe it is? I believe the cloud of witnesses are those who are so faithful to God that the world doesn't even count them worthy. I don't believe everybody's going to be a part of the cloud of witnesses. I believe there's going to be a unique cloud of witnesses, and I think there's going to be a lot of other people around. You know why? Because the principle of the Word of God is this. Jesus took three. He separated them out. Why did he take those three and let them into the presence? Why those three? Why does he give so many parables that seem to point to that to whom much is given, much will be required, and to much is given, more will be given? Why is, there, why is it when the, the mother of one of the disciples came and said to Jesus, grant that my son would sit one on your right, one on your left, why does Jesus say, these are not mine to give, but they shall be given? Somebody's going to sit on the right, somebody's going to sit on the left, somebody's going to be closer to the throne than not somebody else. I just believe it. It's challenging to me to think about it like that, but the cloud of witnesses are not all who have died, but those whom the world does not count worthy. Some will be closer to the presence than others. If you look at the tabernacle of the Old Testament and the presence of God came, not everybody was equally as close to the presence. There was one that got to get into the presence. That was the high priest. Then the Levites. Then the tribes were dispersed around the tabernacle. If you missed everything I said, don't miss what I'm getting ready to say. Heaven doesn't increase your appetite for God. Heaven does not increase your appetite for God. If you don't have an appetite for God now, you won't have one then. You will be there, but you will be, as Paul said, saved as by fire. In other words, you got fire insurance. You got in, but you're not in the presence. You see, heaven is not an equalizer of us all. We don't die, go to heaven, and everybody's you know, kind of living as some socialistic life. You see, those who love the blue and didn't leverage into eternity are going to get the benefits of living in the blue. Why do you think the Bible says that he's going to put crowns upon our head? And then it says as we stand before that we sing a new song, we take the crowns from our head and we throw them at the feet and we say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Not everybody gets a crown. There's seven crowns listed in Scripture. Some people aren't going to get a crown. Some people are going to have multiple crowns. It's not about you. It's about him. You take the crown, you throw it at the feet, and you say, worthy is a lamb. I only imagine, this is my only, uh, only mental picture of it, is that I'm there, and there's the lamb. And I'm at the far back without a crown. And all I can do is observe those who were willing to leverage the blue for eternity, who had a crown and I didn't. Let me give you three life applications, or two life applications. Here's one. Your destiny is heaven, but your responsibility is to bring heaven to earth. You're going to go to heaven one day if you know Christ. But your responsibility is to bring heaven to earth. Isn't what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is where? In heaven. In heaven. Second one. Your future is determined by your decisions. What you do in the blue is going to determine what, you're going to, what, what eternity is going to be like, what your future is going to be like. Make good decisions now. You'll have good benefits in the future. You can't do anything about yesterday. You can't do anything about last year. You can't do anything about the last 20 years. 
God has put that behind. Isn't that good news? I mean, some of you ought to be really rejoicing. Amen? It's good news. But guess what? You do have a choice. You have a choice today to make a decision to leverage today into eternity. Say, God, I may have lost a lot of ground, but God, I'm not going to waste any more. I'm going to leverage it for the kingdom. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing this song one more time. Then Pastor Nate's going to come and close the service. But I want to ask you right now. I want to ask you right now. As you look at the blue of your life, do you find in that blue that you're leveraging it for eternity? And you might say yes or no, or you might say, well, not the way I should. What decision could you make right now where you stand that would have an eternal benefit, an eternal ramification that would say, I'm going to make that this day different? It might be something little to start with. It might grow into something larger. But any decision you make, even a small one, will leverage you into eternity. It's a little undignified sometimes to, as the song says, to be sold out to Jesus. But it won't feel undignified in eternity. It'll just seem normal.